my name's John, John Woolhouse. Well, I've been working with wood since I was 13 years old. I was asked to make a box, and the rest is history, so they say. The first step we do is we take a five-foot square piece of plywood, we put it on a 10-foot-6 CNC rail tip, which then cuts all the components, two ends, two sides, a base and a top. We utilise the CNC's, which enable those to be exact time after time. Those components are then carried to the print shop, my wife screen prints. And my son digitally prints the individual numbers and the artwork. All the components are brought to the main factory and the guys assemble that by hand with pneumatic nail guns and adhesive to give the basic plywood box. The box is then clad top and bottom with timber. The corner post stops the box from being smashed apart from inside. My favourite part is the actual design and the fact that the boxes are all exactly the same, which means that you can take a lid off any box and put it on any other box, which is different to how we normally make boxes. Each one is individually numbered. We're using technology to print each box. We've got screen printing, traditional, goes back centuries. So we're using century-old printing methods with current-day technology. The box is then sanded, cleaned out. Then we put it onto the bench where we fit the foam inside out, put the lid on, put the straps round, put it in the strato cells, in the carton, and then on the lorry. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, hi, hi. And welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is why screen, screen, podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sal Wiles. Thank you all for tuning in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today, folks, we're going to be doing a couple of firsts here on Paul or Nothing. The first first is that we're going to be doing an episode that I came up with live on air. And the second first is that this is going to be a listen with episode that we can't actually finish in one sitting. Basically, whilst doing the intro... For Beatles in 63, the episode where I interviewed Daffa Threese. Go back and check that out if you haven't already. And I posited the idea of doing a Listen With Sam series for the 7-inch singles box set. And I can't lie, the idea has been stuck in my head for a while. The notes file has been sat on my desktop for weeks now, taunting me. And as you can see by the title of this episode, I have indeed gone ahead and done it. The main reason for this move is mostly because I hadn't really covered this box set in much detail at all. And originally I was thinking of doing a quick like intro segment where I talk about the concept for the album and the sales 
and the controversies surrounding the quality control, yada, yada, yada. But that's not particularly interesting. It's more of just a little new segment piece, which it kind of already has been in the past. And, you know, I wanted to cover this in some way. It's so Titanic. And I thought the best way for me to do it would just be to go through it. <laughs> this thing is way more comprehensive than, say, Wing's Greatest or the Best and Pure McCartney. And so it's not going to be the quickest project ever. But I thought it'd be fun. And it's going to allow me to return to some songs that I've only ever been able to discuss once here on the show. We're going to be revisiting a lot of tracks as well, which is always fun. It's always nice to see if I can desperately think of new ways to say different things about songs <laughs> I've already said things about. But yeah, this is going to be a Listen With Sam side series within a side series, as silly as that sounds. Uh, so that will put a delay for quite a while on regular Listen With Sam episodes. But they were probably becoming a little too regular anyway, and we were catching up on ourselves, especially in the way that I release uh, mainline episodes. I think we were coming up to Tug of War, I think that would have been the next one. So for now, we're just going to be going through the big singles box set, all of those seven inches there. Not physically, obviously, I did not get the box. I myself am going to be going through Spotify and putting the music in later. But yeah, this isn't going to be anything too complicated. As always, these episodes are nice little buffers that allow me to focus on the bigger projects that are coming up in the future. And believe me, they are many in number. So, you know, this is just the best way for me to get a bit of content out for you all. We can listen to some music, have a bit of fun, talk about some songs. What more can you want? Of course, this is going to be done in the same order as the box set. So if it's not on the box set, it's not going to be spoken about here. But I will be taking breaks to mention certain omissions, that kind of thing. So it isn't going to be purely music. But yeah, folks, it's going to be Listen With Sam. You know the deal by now. Uh, how many are we going to be doing an episode? Well, it's going to average out being about five or six episodes long at around 13 to 14 tracks each. Oh, God, now that I say that out loud, that does sound like a lot. So we had a crack on, really. Though, before we do, we must settle the matter of the... Housekeeping! Right, starting off, we have quite a bit of news. Some of it is a bit of a rollover from the last episode. But starting off, it is that time of the year again when we have the announcement of another instalment in the Half Speed Masters series. Yes, this is the high-end uber high quality re-releases the 50th anniversary re-releases of McCartney's solo and wings material so far we've had McCartney one ram and wildlife and now surprise surprise we are shortly due a new and improved red rose speedway now this should totally just be good news by itself right well not really because this new red rose speedway will seemingly only be available on the very short period that is record store day yeah i know right if this is true of course this is going to make the release far more difficult to acquire than it should be especially compared to the rest of the series which i thought was reasonably successful and would warrant a wide release but yeah let's just read the quote red rose speedway will be released as a limited edition half speed mastered vinyl lp for record store day 2023 the 50th anniversary pressing will be available from April 22nd, just ahead of the anniversary of its original release on April 30th, 1973. 
Now, at first, I thought they mentioned the original release date to imply that they would be still releasing it on its actual 50th anniversary in a, in, in, in a wider way, and that the Record Store Day release would just be a way for people to get it early, like a promotion for the actual thing. But it seems that Record Store Day or Secondhand are going to be our only options of getting our hands on this. Does this mean that the regular half-speed remasters indeed aren't selling enough? and it's worth just making it a Record Store Day exclusive. Or is this indeed a massive blunder on the part of NPL? Like, surely anyone who's bought one of these half-speed remasters is gonna buy all of them, and I know quite a lot of us out there already have one, if not three of them already, and would like to continue on with all of them. And so, for Paul to make it as limited as this does seem to be unnecessarily difficult. Like, why are they risking us, more specifically me, not getting this album and keeping my collection complete? What if I'm working that day? Why can't I just buy it online? It seems kind of bullshit, and I want to know what you lot think about this. So lend me your thoughts by dropping me an email at paulmcgillypod at gmail.com. Then we have Yoko News. Yes, we do indeed have a bit about Miss Ono. First of all, she's had her 90th birthday. She's the first of the principal Beatles characters, except for maybe George Martin, to reach that ripe old age. We have like another decade before Paul gets there, my gosh. But yeah, happy birthday indeed to Yoko. You know, she's still working, she's still putting out art, she's still being Yoko, more power to her. Though the other big story concerning her in recent times is the announcement that she has officially left New York and is instead choosing to spend the rest of her life in a rural upstate New York farm that her and Lennon purchased together in 78. She actually moved up there first during COVID, but has since announced that she has no plans to return to her Upper West Side abode, aka the famous Dakota apartment. Ergo, the Lennon New York saga has indeed finally come to a close, everyone. Then, according to Variety, multiple sources have confirmed that the two surviving Beatles, aka Paul and Ringo, are going to contribute to and appear on an as-of-yet unannounced Rolling Stones album, which is said to be produced by Andrew Watt. McCartney has reportedly recorded bass parts for the project, with sessions taking place in Los Angeles in recent weeks. It's not yet known whether either Beatles' contribution will make the final cut or whether both Beatles will indeed appear on the same song, but it's all very exciting in the lamest sort of way. Like, I feel like a, co- uh, a collaboration between the Stones and any surviving Beatle would have been amazing 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. It seems funny that they've waited till 2023 to do this, but, you know, we'll always take what we can get. Especially since this is the Stones' first album of new material since 2005's A Bigger Bang. So it's not like they needed a gimmick like this to drum up publicity or anything. They're the Stones. Anyway, a release date for this album has not yet been announced. And I'm sure we'll cover it as briefly as possible when, if indeed, it does come out. In a bit of lighter news, Paul was recently seen at a star-studded David Hockney art exhibit at the Lighthouse Art Gallery in London. The exhibition used large-scale projection on all of its walls to 
take fans on a journey through 60 years of Hockney's iconic work, and loads of photos did the rounds on social media. It was a veritable who's who, because in all these photos, in addition to Paul and Hockney, there is Elton John, Tom Hanks, Jules Holland, as well as Nancy and Mary McCartney. So, you know, Paul is just getting all the clicks just for being in cool places and showing how relevant and in the art scene he still is to this day. And finally, Linda's long touring photography exhibition, Linda McCartney Retrospective, has finally come to America. The exhibit catalogues Linda's 30-year photography career and has itself been touring for 10 years now, having been shown in Vienna, Montpellier, Seoul, Glasgow, Liverpool and Australia since its launch in 2013. In the States, it's fittingly debuting in Tucson at the Centre for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona. Right, and that's all we have for the news today. And now we'll just quickly get through the plugs. Get in contact with the show. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Anything McCartney or podcasting related. Whether you've seen Paul live, whether you want to talk about an album of his, a song, an episode of ours. Maybe you've met the man, seen him, gone through his bins, anything at all. Drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter or get in direct personal contact with me. Uh, at McCartney Pod, that's at McCartney Pod on our Twitter for some written Paul or Nothing content. Check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. On the socials, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. Of course, YouTube is the place where you can check out all of our episodes of Macca in Your Attic, our McCartney memorabilia based sister show. If you love this show, you'll love that. Go and check it out. And now on to this where you get involved, folks. If you want to help out the show right now in a really easy way that takes less than 30 seconds, please just give us some sort of interaction. Give us some stars, a like, a thumbs up, a comment, a review. Maybe even share this or another episode you've enjoyed with a Facebook group or on Reddit or any form of social media, anything like that. It helps out the show massively. It introduces us to new people and expands the Paul or Nothing family. And speaking of Paul or Nothing family, my close family, my direct family, is of course my Patreon patrons. Mm. And if you want to help out the show directly and see the show grow and expand, or even just help keep the lights running, then please consider joining our Patreon page. It is the platform by which, as I'm sure you know by now, you, the public, can support independent content creators such as myself. But it's not just a gimme. You do get your money's worth. You get two days early access to all episodes of Paul or Nothing, a week's early access to all episodes of Macca in your attic. You get lost and deleted and unreleased episodes of Paul or Nothing. You get access to the video feed. So any episode I do with a guest or interview gets immediately uploaded to the Patreon unedited with visuals and that can be weeks or even months ahead of an actual release and there are going to be a couple of them coming up in the near future and of course you get access to the exclusive Paul or Nothing Patreon bonus feed. Yes, every week or two I do an exclusive episode for the Patreon patrons. The last one was me going through all of my Paul McCartney merch and clothes, that kind of thing. That was a fun episode. It was a bit like a catwalk runway episode of Paul or Nothing. But right after I record this episode, I'm actually going to be doing another one where I'm going to be doing a version of the Beatles' Hey Jude album, you know, the one that kind of took all the loose odds and ends and put them onto an album, and doing that 
with wings. So that's going to be a lot of fun as well. So lots to check out on the Patreon. You do get your money's worth. So if you enjoyed the show, if you like what I'm doing here, you know, we don't do ads here on Paul or nothing. So if you want to feel like you're giving back, then please become one of our lovely Patreon patrons and become part of the Paul or nothing family, people who include... Stephen Lanham, Isabella Diaz, Stephanie Bradley, Louise Overberg, John Carp, Brian Brigman, Annie McNeil, Percy Thrillington, David Stabersky, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P, Roderick Harper, Chris Atkinson, Mr. Bowie slash Bowie, still got that one, Richard Biddington, Teresa Brader, Cheryl McCoy, Lou DiLonardo, Robert A. Carabelli, Warren Butson, Cheryl McCoy, and my main man, Matt Phillips. Right, now that all of that is done, folks, it is now time for us to sit back and relax and take out all of our copies of the McCartney 7-inch singles box set. You know, of course, we all have one. We could all afford one. You know, it totally wasn't exclusive or anything. We're going to take out our box sets and pretend to go through one right now. And I'm not going to cheat. You're going to hear me take every single disc on and off. I'm not just going to be listening to a stream through earphones or anything like that. No, we're doing this properly. We're going to go back in time and we're going to be there as fans going through the singles discography of Paul McCartney, Wings and Paul McCartney again. Folks, I can't tell you how excited I am to do this. You know, we always talk about the importance of singles and how McCartney was kind of there for the height of the single uh, as a format. And he was there for its death and semi-resurgence and death again. Cyclical as all things are, you know, we always talk about how important these singles are and how they affect his career and affect his future career as well. And so, to go through all of them now in this context is going to be as enlightening as hopefully it is enjoyable. But enough talking, Sam, let's just crack right on. Starting off, we have another day. Yes, we have the very first solo Paul McCartney single ever, and you know what. It ain't half bad, is it, folks? I mean, we're already, you know, 15 seconds into this song now, and already I'm transported to a world of absolute bliss. This was released on the 19th of February, 1970, and the single artwork for this box set is from the Swedish release. Now, with this being Paul's first post-Beatles single, the importance of this song can't be understated. In addition to proving himself that he could still physically make music, the important thing that this song did was prove that said music was still able to chart without being attached to the Beatles brand. With this going to the number one spot on the Australian, Irish and Spanish charts, as well as number two here in the UK and five in the jolly old US of A. Of course, this is the second song in the great history of Paul McCartney's songs about women or sad songs about women. You know, you could definitely see this as Elna Rigby Part 2 or the beta version of Daytime Nights I'm Suffering. And, you know, I always love it when Paul does these empathetic songs that catalogue the trials and tribulations of women. It's very astute writing, you know. No one's really taking views like this. You know, Paul is really putting himself in someone else's shoes, which is always very engaging, you know, not writing about himself. That's always really fun. Paul does these characters so well. And this is equally as filmic as something like Elna Rigby, where the only real main difference is that rather than, you know, the way Elna Rigby is like this grand narrative, Another Day is more like a hyper-focused sequence 
in a larger story, like just a snapshot of someone's life. And Paul always does these snapshots so well. What this song also does, something that no one really talks about, is how accurately Paul, despite being a millionaire by this point, actually manages to capture the working class experience. You know, the thing is, unlike John, Paul actually was a working class hero. He was working classical when he was coming up. And so it totally makes sense that he's more able to inhabit this character and so accurately capture her image. In terms of, like, my own relationship with this song, I guess my main memory, though, of course, it's going back to The Simpsons, folks. I mean, do you remember when he used to make Simpsons jokes every episode? That was a thing I tried for a while. But um, there's an episode uh, in like one of the mid-seasons where this song plays um, over a montage of the drudgery of Bart Simpson's teacher, Miss, Mrs. Krabappel. Always remember that, and I loved how this was used. You know, there's so much McCartney and Beatles in Simpsons, it's great. One of the best things about this song, though, is that the chords are amazing. I remember playing this on acoustic for my dad, and I was so happy that all the chords just fit together. It's like a a very logical, progressive song, like, you know, an F into a C, into an E, you know, like, your fingers really don't move all that much. And it it sounds so effective. Though, my dad was always annoyed that I didn't know how to do the the, uh, descending notes, you know, I just kind of played A instead. But still, the song's divine. I absolutely love this one. I think you all do too. So, let's just... Press on right to the next one. Then we come to our first B-side, folks. Yes, I'm going to be saying B-side a lot in these episodes because this is a big box of singles. And here we have Oh Woman, Oh Why. And let's just get things clear, folks. In terms of subject matter, this is easily one of the best A and B-side singles Paul ever put out like like just just the thematics of it side a the first song another day shows sympathy to a woman and here on the b side with oh woman oh boy he's turned into this chauvinistic very macho bloke who's always questioning his woman although you could argue that since we hear gunshots towards the end that the woman actually does indeed shoot the man which perhaps points to McCartney's opinions on what fate should become of sexist or violent dickheads. In a way, you could even argue that this is basically Paul's own feminised version of something like Hey Joe by Jimi Hendrix, but we have the roles reversed instead. Now let's just listen to this vocal. talk about Road All Night as the de facto badass vocal from this era but for me it's this maybe along with Monkberry Moon Delight that are you know the real standouts here like oh my (laughs) you know this is not reserved Paul this is not crooner or romantic Paul this is him just getting it out of his system it makes sense, you know, for him to be singing a song like this where he's questioning, he was in a very tumultuous part of his life. You know, maybe he's not even singing about a specific woman, maybe he's just asking 
questions about people in general. No, it's not about John or the Beatles. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. But, you know, it makes sense that he would write a song like this in this period. Oh, and the drums. Oh, Denny's drums are so, so tight on this song. Like, I, like, I know it's a real trope, but the notes that he doesn't play on this track are what really draw me in. Like, you know, it, it, it can be so reserved, like, just, just here. And then we go into the ride. Oh, that's beautiful. Of course, we also have my boy Hugh McCracken doing the slick-ass guitar on this song. And the, the way you can tell it's him is just fucking awesome. Um, you know, this is so Hugh McCracken. It has that slight country flair. And, you know, everything about this just screams the era that it is from. And what era is that? Of course, it's Ram. The A-side, of course, as well. Another Day was from the Ram era as well. But I just love how, you know, Paul's first uh, album has no single. There is no Maybe I'm Amazed, backed with Uyu, for example. And in the Paul McCartney canon, the first single is all Ram material. But no wonder it did well. Ram's the best album by far, especially from this era. And, you know... (laughs) Whether consciously or not, it certainly worked out <laughs> for the best in the end, didn't it? Obviously, these gunshots are, I think, you know all those photographs of the Ram recording sessions we have where Paul's, like, closing his eyes and firing a revolver? This is where that has to come from, right? <laughs> you know, they had a bow and arrow on McCartney 1, and now for Ram, they've upgraded to a gun. Um, it's a shame for, like, wildlife they didn't, like, upgrade to, like, a rocket launcher or some sort of automatic grenade launcher or something like that. Oh, well. Uh, I, f- I forgot that this song has a fade-out. I'm not normally a big fan of fade-outs, but, uh... Because it's that same kind of monk moon delight down the rabbit hole, silly wackiness, it kind of works. It kind of works. But, yeah, great B-side to start off today's episode. And we're going to move right on to our second single now, which is Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. Our first double-titled song already. You know, we're on to our second single, and we have a song with a double title. Very McCartney-esque again. And this was released on the 2nd of August, 1971. And being that it was a mostly US-related release... It does make sense that the artwork in this box set is from the US single. This was another early success for Paul. You know, everyone talks about how, like, Ringo and George and John were doing really well at the start of their careers and how Paul floundered until Band on the Run. But, you know, we've had uh, a European number one, a UK number two, and a US number five with Another Day. And now with Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey, we have a song that gets to the number one on the US Billboard chart. Not that, you know, adult contemporary or the cash box, anything like that. Number one on US Billboard chart, as well as Canada and New Zealand. In addition, it also got to number three in Mexico and number five in Australia. Come on, folks. Come on. How can you not revel in that? That's so cool. Well done, Macca. You know, this is the most British, pompey, silly, rule Britannia, colonialist, old empire kind of song he could have done. And yet it still works. You know, we've got butter pies and stuffy accents. And these and these Yanks are loving it. What's all that about? Because, you know, when he released the very Scottish-sounding 
Mull of Kintyre, that completely flopped in America. I don't know what the world wants from Paul here. <laughs> Just stick to British. We don't want any Irish or Welsh songs, although we do have an Irish song coming up soon, actually. But the kettle's on the boil. Obviously, this song is a song in many parts. It was uh, inspired by a lot of the music Paul was listening to at the time. I can't remember the specific artist's name. I should have written it down, but, you know, I am trying to do these Listen With Sam episodes more off the cuff now. So if I don't remember an anecdote, oh well. But then, yeah, this is where the song takes off for me now. This is the, you know, if I ever get out of here... Oh, giving it all away. Part of Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey for me. The hands across the water segment. I mean, this is even better in the Thrillington version. I can't believe I'm saying that out loud, but you know, this part specifically, oh my god, on Thrillington is absolutely enlivening. But yeah, who cannot love this this part of the song? I believe even Lennon himself is quoted to say that he enjoyed this part of the song. And I don't blame him. It's very catchy. Oh, and now we're into another part of the song now. Well, like a, a middle eighth within this new phrase of, of the song. And then we'll go back into Hands Across the Water. But let's get back to the release. Why wasn't this a worldwide single? Was this standard practice for the time? You know, did John, George and Ringo have territory-specific releases around that time? But... As we're going to see as we move along, there really was no universal Ram single. And it makes me wonder whether Paul and MPL were trying to test the waters of each foreign market to see what would stick. Oh. Another part of the song here. This might have the, the record for the most individual separate parts of a McCartney song, each with their own unique melody that actually works. Of course... Uh, going back to memories I have, we had The Simpsons in the last single, and with Uncle Albert, my most ardent, my most vivid memory is of this appearing in the UK sitcom Only Falls and Horses for the episode He Ain't Heavy, He's My Uncle. See, I can remember that bit, 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 bit of trivia, but not The Simpsons one, <laughs> or the guy who inspired this song. But yeah, that's the episode where Uncle Albert leaves the flat and they think he's missing. It's probably chosen entirely because the, the character's called Uncle Albert. But if you had that, why wouldn't you use it? You know, it's so obvious. And it makes me even more annoyed that Marvel still hasn't used Magneto and Titanium Man for a movie. But I think we'll be getting onto that next episode anyway. But yeah, this is one of the crown jewels of the songbook. It really is. And now we're going to move on to... <laughs> it's so weird listening to this song after Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. This is the opening to Ram. The B-side is, of course, Too Many People. It's a bit of a demotion, isn't it? Like, a lot of the time, if you've got an opening track for an album, it's normally a single, not a B-side, right? It's a weird step down. Now, the thing that really caught my eye with this single, both the A-side and the B-side, is that it's actually in mono. And whilst my earphones really don't seem to be able to make out much of a difference in terms of like quality or like differences or anything like that, it still got me very interested in the idea of a RAM album on mono, like something for me to collect. 
I spent a lot of the last Revolver episode talking about how I'm getting into mono and, you know, how, how interesting it is. And I wish that carried on throughout the entire McCartney discography. You know, McCartney and Ram... Uh, <laughs> McCartney and Ram. McCartney in mono, Ram in mono, Wildlife in mono, Red Rose in mono. You know, another reason for me to collect all of these? Uh, I guess not. But, you know, I still can't help but be lured in. And this one's actually seven seconds longer than the stereo version. So immediately just upon seeing two slight time differences uh, timestamps on on like the same song that's already enough to get me really excited from what i can tell there really aren't great differences between the songs i don't think it's going to be like revolver or anything like that i'm not going to hold my breath but from what i have heard about monoram it is the superior way to listen to that album at least according to the people who have spent the money buying it but apparently it's a lot cleaner. There aren't issues with phasing uh, from like one track to another, as in the individual music tracks. And there's some blending apparently that happens on the stereo that I, don't, I really don't hear. This is probably a massive audiophile thing, but apparently folks, according to people on the internet who I've never met, Monoram is the way to go. If any of you have listened to Monoram, I would love to know your experiences. This song is so fucking good, isn't it? <laughs> what I love about Too Many People is that McCartney like, starts the album with the with the most obvious John track. That makes sense. Don't get it out of the way so people can just enjoy the rest of the album. But you could argue that because he puts it as the first song, everyone spends the rest of the album trying to make everything about John. Now... Something I'll probably bring up because I realise I've still got a good minute or so to talk about this song. I'm I'm not going to be talking about the sales of the B sides, even though I know that that is a thing. I mean, there are certain uh, free online encyclopedias of the wiki variety that do list certain B sides as having individual sales. But still, after five plus years of doing this podcast, I still have no idea how the sale of the same disc can yield different sales results. Like, I know it's got something to be like radio play, but this is like 1970, 1971. How are they going to be accurately, you know, tracking that across all radio stations, plus pirate radio as well? Like, it really doesn't make that much sense to me. But it doesn't have to, because now we go into the true Alice in Wonderland falling down the rabbit hole moment of this album. Just that that single note playing on Paul there, that's so effective. I love the boot stomping, uh, Hugh Hugh McCracken's guitar here. Is it Hugh? I hope it is. It's it's probably not, it's probably Dave Dave Spinoza, but hey, at least I remembered the name there. Yeah, folks, what what, what much more can I say about too many people? It's too many people. I've spoken about Ram a lot lately. But I'm going to have to keep talking about Ram because we move forward... Onto the next RAM release in the chronology with The Backseat of My Car, which was released this time as a UK exclusive on the 13th of August 1971. And like the American release, with this being an exclusive for the territory, the box set artwork is that of said UK release. So yeah, this has always been a song that, like, 
whenever I listen to the album in full, I absolutely adore, and I think it is one of the great McCartney closes. Like, you know, the the emotional resonance of this song is so palpable, and it kind of culminates the entire hyper-emotive, very expressive feel that the album has in general. But I'm really not listening to this one outside of the context of the full album. I know I feel like I'm saying that more and more these days, but... You know, I've kind of got my set McCartney playlist of songs that I've curated myself, and almost every other one is going to be in the I listen to this in the full album context. And sometimes that can be because I think the song just works better in the album. Like in this case, sometimes it's because I don't particularly like the song, which is not this case. And sometimes it's because I like forget about the song a lot. And there are a few tracks in this big old box set that I do always forget about and, you know, they're always really fun little uh, treats when I do get to them. But yeah, I don't don't really think I dislike this song at all. I think it's one of the great McCartney compositions. I just don't really listen to it all that often. (sighs) So yeah, this is the UK's release and I'm very grateful for that. I'm glad that we got our own exclusive RAM release. But... I can't help but feel like we as a country let Paul down a little here as this single only managed to climb up to number 39 in the charts. I mean, you know, is it as good as, you know, Eat a Home, Smile Away or Uncle Albert, Too Many People? Mm, Maybe not, but I feel like it should have done a bit better than that. I just did a quick check and clearly at the time, the UK were far more interested in Get It On by T-Rex and I'm Still Waiting by Diana Ross. Again, I can't help but find this to be a little bit funny because unlike Uncle Albert, you know, the British song that did well in America, Backseat of My Car is a song where Paul is being decidedly American, you know, with references to highways and Mexico City and, you know, going off to drive with your sweetheart. And when that's released to a, a British audience... It ends up doing almost nothing. (laughs) You know, clearly, you know, as with Downton Abbey and all that stuff, the Yanks love British stuff, whereas the Brits tend to just love content, not specifically American content. At least that's my take anyway. Weirdly, though, I can't believe that (laughs) even in the main releases, we'll uh, talk about the omission with the next song, but... With both of these singles, the uh, US single and the UK one, we've had the opening song of the album and the closing song of the album. I think we're going to get that on Band on the Run as well, actually. That feels so strange. And it is one of the great risks when you don't do these non-album singles. You you, you end up just with, like, these awkward moments where you, you haven't got a lot of the album left to listen to. Like, I really wish Paul did include more of his cold cuts as B-sides. It really would give a little more variety to everything. Oh. Oh, one thing I have noticed, and this has been extended now by the inclusion of The, the Love is Strange, um, uh, unreleased single, but apart from the uh, Left Out Eat at Home, all of these songs so far have been four-plus-minute singles. These have been long songs, folks, you know? You know, Paul's really putting out the big material here. He's not putting out you know, throwaway two-minute ones here, is he? And that brings Ram to a close. 
But it doesn't really, because we have to have a quick conversation about the first omission in this release. Yes, this box set was not perfect, folks, and no, I'm not referring to all of the typos and poorly placed stickers and you know, thumb marks, that kind of thing. Nothing to do with quality control, just in terms of content. And, you know, we know, of course, that there were loads of McCartney singles that came out in different non-UK, non-US locations. And whenever you do talk about non-UK, non-US locations uh, in, in terms of the Beatles or Paul McCartney, it almost feels like they're just one, th- you know, the third territory. But they are important. Paul does have hits abroad, you know, like Germany and the Netherlands loved Off the Ground, for example, so it makes sense that Paul would continually, you know, give some love to the non-English speaking world. And so it does feel a little strange that they wouldn't include the uh, continental European, Australian, New Zealand, South American and Japanese release of Eat at Home and Smile Away. Um, I think it got to number seven in the Netherlands and number eight in Norway. It wasn't like a massive hit or anything, but it was successful enough for like Paul to actually bother including both Eat at Home and Smile Away on the set list for the Wings European tour, with Eat at Home being played 12 times and Smile Away being played a total of 20 times. That's pretty significant. That's not a completely forgotten single, and it it's a shame that it's not been included in this box set. You know, why don't we have all three of the Ram singles? I mean, all of this comes down to the fact that these weren't universal releases and they probably should have been. You know, what is it with the Ram period and not releasing these singles in all the territories? It's almost like Chobber, you know, the Russian album where Paul is actively trying to encourage some sort of cross-borders black market trade for this stuff. Like, there are always going to be some people in each territory that are going to want this stuff, so why not make some money? Like, do you only release a McCartney single if you want it to chart? Like, do you, to get to the top ten? You know, do you not just want to put out music so that people can buy your music and love it? I don't know. Still, it's a cool piece of trivia that each territory got an individual one, but my God, it makes it awkward, and, you know, you end up with things like this, where one of the singles is just not included in the release. It doesn't make sense in terms of the quality of the set, though. You know, make the box set a little bigger, fill that space with the other singles, and raise the price appropriately. The people who were going to buy it outright, you know, outright, or go on the payment plan, would already be more than willing to pay it a little more and have some more content. You've already got us by the balls, Paul. So why not make a little more money out of it and make it the ultimate box set and include literally everything? I mean, I've heard on the grapevine that this box set may have lost money in the long term. But hey, if you included everything, you could actually charge more of a premium. You know, fuck it. Make it a grand. Have no stone unturned. Have all the jukebox singles in there as well. I don't know. It's annoying, but it is what it is. What's worse, I can't even get this niggling thought out of the back of my mind that this is you know, rather akin to some of the Beatles releases we've had lately in terms of their bonus content, like, oh, why wasn't this on there? Why wasn't that song on there? 
and as old hat and cynical as this is, it always comes down to one thing, money. If Paul put everything onto this box set in terms of singles, there would be nothing to release in the future. And I am highly positive that in my lifetime, maybe not yours, but certainly in my lifetime, there will be another Paul McCartney box set that will have some, if not all, maybe most of these missing singles, and they'll just do it a second time around. <sighs> People's wallets, man. There's got to be a breaking point. Or, you know, we'll just start living off ramen for the rest of our lives. Anyway, in conclusion, the only positive I do have to say about this is that if it had have been included, I would have had to have taken up, you know, another 10 minutes reviewing two more Ram songs that we've already discussed quite a bit on this show already and on other podcasts, actually. But hey, you know, it's Ram, so it's a hit I would have been willing to take. And with that, it's now time for us to get back on track with a Chase single that is so desirable that it would have certainly have eased the pain of actually buying this whole box set. And it will certainly be on eBay right now as I speak at an extortionate price. This is the single version of Love is Strange, and it was never released, and so any artwork is entirely new. Yes, this is the first of the new singles to grace this box set. Uh, I mean, yes, certain countries didn't get certain other ones, and we'll get to all that later, but this is the first that has literally been created for the very first time, thanks to the, to the release of this set. As some of you may or may not know, this was originally conceived as the album single to help promote wildlife back in 72, but it was never actually pressed beyond a few valuable test copies, one of which actually featured on the Andrew Brooks episode of Maca in Your Attic. Be sure to go and check that out if you haven't already. But yeah, this is the single version Essentially, the only thing that's really dropped is the intro. Like, they've, they've, they've just shortened it down to 4 minutes 15. It's not a massive difference or anything, but it does make the song kind of start a little too abruptly, maybe. Um, I kind of like that, 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 that slower introduction to the world of this song. But hey, you know, it's one of those uh, formatting issues that we're probably going to see quite a lot throughout this series. But the question is, why was this never released? Was it because of the that poor intro? Well, according to Chip Madinger and Mark Easter's book, Eight Arms to Hold You, the solo Beatles compendium, it says, clearer heads prevailed over the holidays and the disc's release was cancelled as it was not seen to be the best way to introduce Wings to the 45 RPM market. However, another version says that Paul himself objected to this idea and instead pushed to release Give Ireland Back to the Irish as Wing's first single. I mean, I kind of agree with that. Like, is a cover version the best way to, to like, introduce your new rock and roll band? And, like, you know, Wildlife isn't exactly the best representation of what Wings was, especially live, so maybe it's fine that this wasn't released and kind of brushed under the carpet a little. But... Also, you know, this, this is just one of the best songs on Wildlife as well. It's absolutely delightful. And just as I say delightful, Paul's beautiful voice comes in. Paul's vocal does come in so late here probably lends a lot of credence as to why this wasn't released like you know 
if you know record companies are trying to put Paul McCartney and Wings on albums and yet their first single is like just the backing vocalist for like the first two and a half minutes I can see why that might make them a little bit jittery I guess oh and then we go into this that not just one of the best moments on wildlife come on i've said it before and i'll say it again there's not enough la 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 and give music anymore there's not enough do 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 or ooze anymore i love this kind of you know just vocalizations that aren't words it, 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 it's always so fun and universal now i think i've mentioned this before but paul actually has done this song live i mean i know it's not his song but uh, if you remember um, that there was a very private, exclusive mini performance he, he put on during the filming of the Stranglehold music video. And this was one of the songs he did. Like, oh my God, like, that's so rare. And, you know, I don't think Paul's going to be putting in covers into his main set list that aren't old rock and roll covers, so we're probably never going to see him do this one live. But those Stranglehold people did not know how lucky they were. Well... Cracking song, once again, got nothing bad to say about Love is Strange at all, especially because oh, of this B-side. You know, you all know I love this one. This is I Am Your Singer. This will forever be one of my low-key McCartney all-time favourites from day one. It's always been one of the most vicariously gooey, lovey-dovey tracks of McCartney's whole career, and it's that exact reason why I'm so drawn to it. Also, you know, at the time I first heard this song, I was in a very loving and committed relationship. So there was, you know, there was a bit of projection there as well. But, you know, even as a single Pringle ready to mingle, I'm still, you know, besotted with this track. I mean, how could you not be? You know, it's universally lovable. And then when you get the backstory of, you know, the fact that it's Paul and Linda as a couple, you know, Paul's written the song for them to sing and they sing it together in the studio, in a band together. Like, like you know, how can your heart not skip a beat for a story like that? Oh, these gorgeous pan floats, you know, is it a more romantic instrument? Oh. The decision to potentially choose this as a B-side is really cool though, because it's a relatively obscure song in the McCartney canon. And if had, you know, if, if this had been released, it would have been a little more widely known. I, I'm not saying it would have been a household name or anything, but you know, it would be cool that maybe even just one more person would have heard this song. It'd be nice. Still, I'd like to know whether this was considered as the B-side because Paul thought it was amongst the best or amongst the most throwaway material from those sessions. My song is As always, though, as a big Hot Hits and Cold Cuts guy, I mean, if you were going to release, a, you know, a single around the time of Wildlife, why not put something on, like, you know, When the Wind is Blowing or something? Of course, I'm always going to champion that kind of decision, but, hey, if the alternative is I Am Your Singer, mm, I really can't complain. This is one of the most beautiful ones in the entire canon. It just is. Right, back to the regular historical timeline of events as it is now the occasion for us to talk about the second single on this episode that I haven't already covered on a previous Listen With Sam episode. Sorry about that, folks. And that song is Give Island Back to the Irish. It was released on the 25th of February, 1972, and the box set artwork, ironically, is 
that of the UK version. <laughs> oh, look, folks, this is a perfectly fine song. I mean, I, I always have a lot of fun introducing this to, to like Irish people that I know. I went to a Catholic school, so it was me and Irish people as far as the eye could see. And, you know, I've never been short of first-hand opinions on this song. Let's just say that. Uh, whether they knew the song beforehand or not, you know, I'll just send them this. And the opinions of Irish people on the song are always strong, always divisive, and always, for the most part, negative. You know, Great Britain, you are tremendous. That is just not the best line to put in a song that is meant to be, like, sending up the, the British occupation of Ireland. Ugh. But yeah, it's always fun to introduce this to Irish people as, like, a Paul McCartney song. And they're like, Paul released this? And I'm like, yeah, and it was Wings' first big single, too. And people can't seem to even fathom that that's a reality. But that is the world we live in, folks. For me, this has always been one of those songs, as with many ones in McCartney's discography, that is more interesting as a trivia piece than as a work of art or music. The whole story behind it and the fact that it got banned and that it led to, like, Mary Had a Little Old Lamb and how it was more popular because it was banned because that was a, a trend in the UK at the time. That's all really fascinating. But the song itself... I mean, I mean, people far more clever and erudite than me have pointed out it is just a bit of a damp squib. You know, Paul doesn't commit to the ideals of this song enough. Like, I mean, I'm not asking him to, like, you know, sing about a song where he, you know, beheads Queen Elizabeth in 1972 or anything, but, but just something that really kind of hammers home the, like, the plight and the anguish that the Irish people are going through at this time during the Troubles, you know? Like, if he had, you know, done a song that was as empathetic and as, you know, inhabiting as something like Another Day, where he, you know, managed to, to like, you know, take on the opinions and the worldview of that woman, but for Ireland, I think the song would have had a much more bite and teeth to it. Anyway, despite the controversy, it did manage to make some sales. I mean, it, it, it it's not like it went to number one because it was banned or anything. Uh, it pinged to number 16 on the UK singles chart, 21 on the Billboard Hot 100 in the United States. But, predictably, it did reach number one in Ireland and Spain, weirdly. But Spain was... I mean, was Spain still under, like, Franco during that time? Like, fascism all that? Maybe. You know, I know the uh, Barcelonians will probably, probably like this song as well. You know, give Barcelona back to the Barcelonians. Uh, also, uh, just go back and check out that cover by um, Charlie and the Boys, because they omit the uh, Great Britain, You Are Tremendous line and replace it with Great Britain, You Are Intruders. I, I absolutely love that. I think that's a, a much more uh, fun way to do the song. And no, I'm not really going to acknowledge the fact that we are now onto the B side of this thing because it's basically a continuation of the same song. I mean, I've never noticed it up, 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 up until now, but when you listen to Give Ireland Back to the Irish and its B side on streaming, this whole instrumental version is basically just, just like the longest play out, fade out of any song ever. <laughs> but yeah. The thing that I've always found quite odd about this 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 track is that it's called 
give Ireland back to the Irish brackets version. So yeah, like, unlike other McCartney songs, rather than it being called Give Ireland Back to the Irish Brackets Instrumental or Brackets Alternative Version, it's just called Give Ireland Back to the Irish Version. What kind of practice is that? Like, every single version of a song is a version. Like, everything's a version. How does this even make grammatical sense? I have no idea why it's worded that way, but yeah, you know. The only reason why I'm blathering on about the title is because this song is literally one of the most pointless things in the entire McCartney discography. Seriously, this episode that I'm recording right now may literally be one of the only times I've ever listened to this song in full, as I have no real interest in hearing a version of this song without the lyrics. Yeah, they aren't the best lyrics ever, but they still add something to the song in a major way and you know Paul's vocal is absolutely fantastic and so with an instrumental we're just left with a medley a medley that isn't as strong you know it it doesn't warrant its own existence I mean we do get a bit of extra lead guitar you know it's it's quite whistly and and high and, and whimsical and this does feel quite Irish in its arrangement but it's a little late in the game, you know, and, and, you know, it doesn't make as much of an impact as it should. You know, surely there must have been something else they could have put here, anything else that could have been used as a B-side. I mean, once again, just use When the Wind is Blowing or something like that. Come on. This couldn't have been the best thing that the band could have put out at this point. Although, you know, if they know the song's going to get banned and they're trying to make a song that's going to get banned, why waste so much time putting a decent B-side on? So, you know, maybe that's part of it. Probably not, though. God, is this, is this song still going on? It really is, is isn't it? It is the... <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking at the uh, Spotify playlist of the seven new singles that I'm using to listen to while I'm making this episode. Weirdly, Give Ireland Back to the Irish version, the B-side, is a second longer than the normal track. Don't know how that works. I wonder what extra content that one second gives us. Probably earth-shattering, I know. Um, Folks, do write in. Is this the worst Paul McCartney B-side? Is this one of the worst Paul McCartney songs ever released? Wing solo, whatever. Oh, thankfully, I I I can hear the uh, keys coming in now. Oh, there we are. It's over. Don't, don't, don't worry, folks. We can go back to our lives now. And now we come to an even more infamous song in the Paul McCartney canon. Yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, it's also two non-album tracks in a row. So this episode's finally kicking off. In direct contrast to the previous single, that was really controversial. Paul's gone completely the other way. And this could only ever be Mary Had a Little Lamb. It came out on the 12th of May, 1972, and the sleeve artwork for a third time now is that of the UK version. Now, I think we all understand that this was not the best move for Wings in terms of single releases. You know, it definitely affected their branding and their public image in a negative way, and it may largely be responsible for their reputation as being a bit rubbish, as opposed to the awesome live rock band that they were. But that doesn't mean I'm still going to sit here and call it an outright bad song. 
I actually do think it's quite good at being what it is. Like, you know, it's fit for purpose. It's a children's song. It's not trying to be a rock and roll number or something cool and interesting. It's trying to appeal to a specific audience, and it does so shamelessly. And I can really appreciate that. You know, everything Paul does is very shameless. You know, this is the exact same kind of protest statement that we'd see with, like, you know, silly love songs. This is a protest song. It's the most unbannable thing ever. And I think that has a lot of merit to it. Like, it's that kind of wonderfully uh, petty and sly McCartney that we've seen a few times on this podcast now. Like, I understand if you think that this is me trying to legitimise a rubbish song and make it cool, but that's, that's, that's what it is. That's how it works. In fairness, can we also talk about how successful this track was despite supposedly quote-unquote no one liking it this little number still shifted a few boxes of vinyl and got to number nine here in the uk 17 on, in australia and 28 are uh, on the billboard chart and uh, 41 in both canada and japan so it's not like the track bombed or anything you know and the way you can tell that this actually did sell quite a bit is that Whenever you go to a vinyl shop and you look at the second-hand section, there will at least be four or five copies of this song. Also, again, we have a la-la-la refrain here. Again, there's never enough of these. I really love them. It's a very sing-along moment. Uh, you know, love it. Of course, we have to talk about the music videos for this song, the several music videos. You know, it's up there with, like, Mull of Kintyre for, like, most videos. <laughs> and... You know, everyone enjoys this one. If they say they don't, then they're liars. You know, these videos are so adorably goofy and silly. Like, you can still enjoy them and think they're bad, that's fine. You can do it ironically if you want. But, the, you know, just watching Paul with his mullet playing with wings in various pastoral locations in silly white costumes is always going to be funny. This song also reminds me of my granddad, Granddad Ernie. Granddad Ernest Wiles, and he always used to sing a version of this song, which was Mary had a little lamb, it's wool. Uh, Mary had a little lamb, it climbed upon a pylon, 10,000 volts went through the wool, and now the wool is nylon. And he'd laugh at that every time. <laughs> Just a little anecdote of my past there. On to our corresponding B side now with Little Woman Love which is another Ram era tune, but thankfully not on the album itself. It's new Ram content that I can talk about live. And to, to, to be fair, like the best thing this track has going for it is that it is Ram content. Like it's the thing that would probably sell the, the disc for me back in the day if I knew that it was from the Ram sessions. And if McCartney wants to keep plugging B-sides with that leftover content, I am more than happy to, to keep on listening and buying it. You know, it automatically adds a certain uh, credence and credibility to this record, particularly that it sorely needed. And, you know, it would make even, you know, those those reluctant mid-tier or, you know, common casual fans, to, like, to, you know, maybe pick, uh, pick up a copy. This has always been ranked in my mind, though, as one of the best, like, mid-tier McCartney tunes. I think that's the best, most fair way to put it. Like, it's good. It's not great, but it's almost there. I've always admired how much uh, joyous, youthful energy it has. You know, it really explodes right out of the gate. It's very instant. It's 
it's simply infectious. And you know what kind of ride you're in for, which you 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 know you you do get, but you have to realise Makana isn't aiming for the loftiest of heights here. This is just some of that simple, goofy, slightly bucolic, uh, more emotive Ram era content. And what more could you want than that? It could be a little repetitive, but it is all over in just over two minutes, so it really doesn't outstay its welcome. Obviously, the best version of this song, though, is actually the live version that, that the band performed as part of the uh, Wings Over the World tour, which was in a medley with Seamoon. Speaking of which... Well, we come to the A-side of Seamoon's B-side. Uh, this is the first good, proper, solid single from Wings, their first kind of major awesome effort, which of course is High High High. And this track was released on the 20th of September 1972, and the sleeve artwork in this set uh, uses the Belgium release cover. Ah, oh, you, know, you, know, you know, folks, this is a song that I used to play on constant rotation during my early Wings fandom. And since then, I've not listened to it as much as I kind of overplayed it a bit. But listening to it now, it is just like putting on an old pair of gloves. You know, this is a song that's unique in the sense that you enjoy it as much for being seriously badass, at least in McCartney terms, as much as you enjoy it for being goofy as all hell. It, it strikes a really fun balance. It's, it's definitely feel-good McCartney material all the way through. And one of the greatest strengths of this track, actually, is that it's one of those prime early era examples that Wings could occasionally remember that they were meant to be a hard rocking band. Like this, uh, the mess and soily makeup, that holy trifecta of early Wings living up to the hype live. You know, how can you not, you know, consider this to be one of the best McCartney rockers I don't know I, th I think we all love this don't we I think we all do right um, we all love the trivia behind it as well you know who doesn't love that this was the second song of Paul's that was banned like you know how cool is it that Paul's two rock and roll singles were banned like uh, that's such a perspective altering fact that I, I wish more people were aware of really you know it shows that they were a rock and roll act being taken seriously, you know, as, as opposed to what the history books might put. I also love the fact that Paul loves that it was banned and that he got a rush from announcing to audiences, you know, during you know, various tours that it had indeed been censored. Oh, my God. You know, Paul being censored alone is a notion that is as cool and interesting as it is funny. It, it, it just is, isn't it? I mean, why was it banned? I mean, everyone always, you know, points to that polygon, uh, body gun lyric, you know, for, for being the main reason. But seriously, folks, there are far more explicit sexual references throughout this song. Oh, I, 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 I love the shift to the closing part. It's very, very cool. Um, but yeah, like the lines, I'm going to do it to you, going to do you sweet banana. You've never been done. Yes, and like a rabbit, going to grab it, going to do it till the night is done. Surely that's the, the the part of the song that got it banned. Like, that's way worse, surely. In the midday sun. What a rocker. Absolutely fantastic there, Paul. Well done, mate. And 
as I alluded to earlier, we now come to oh, a song that is clearly one of Paul's personal favourites. I think we all know. This is Sea Moon. And yeah, this isn't even the first time we're going to be talking about this song in this little side series, but the other one is way further down the line, to the point that both you and I will forget that it, it even exists by the time we get there. But hey, here's the future us. You know, I might get crucified for saying this, but I am at the point now whereby I'm not all that fussed about this song, and I wouldn't be upset if it never made a sound check again, let alone a set list. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll explain myself, because I can feel you, some of you uh, recoiling. But back in the day, I really used to dig this one. But it has somewhat grated on me throughout the years. Not through my own overplaying, but I just feel like Paul does this one live so much, and I've heard so many versions of it, and it's always included on albums and compilations. And maybe it's not an overplaying, it's just overexposure and so it didn't hit me in the way that it did in my early fandom you know the melody is a little simplistic and repetitive until those horns come in and overall it does feel like a kind of less successful attempt at something like obladi oblada but with little success like exchanging that fun story for for nonsense lyricism I mean, if it were not for Paul's vocal, the song really wouldn't be as high up in my regards as it already is. Uh, I feel like I'm being too harsh already. You know, this song is fun for what it is, folks. You know, don't think I don't, you know, enjoy to, at least on a surface level, you know, bop along to this one and enjoy it whenever I hear it, whenever Paul does it live, etc., etc. But... I do recognise it as not exactly top-tier McCartney material. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. I'm not calling it bad. I'm not. But there's better out there. I think we can all agree. that we all can? So, yeah. I mentioned nonsense lyrics just, but... Rather than say, like, a song where it is all nonsense... Oh, hear those songs. Port is kind of a combination of nonsense and lyrics that mean something in here like for every nonsense line you have about L7 getting to heaven which despite what Paul says is gobbledygook um, you then have a really resonant line where Paul decries why people older than him never understand him which is like this super universal phrase that could really capture the attention and the imagination of a listener and then on top of that Paul gives this genuine emotive vocal on top of everything that, 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 that does drive it home and suddenly you do kind of get what it's going for. Um, you know, I just wish those moments where I do vibe with the song and really kind of get what it's going for were a bit more co- a bit more common. I guess that would be my main criticism to take away from, from this one. Um, you know what I said with uh, Little Woman Love, the last B-side, that it did start to get a bit repetitive, but because it was only like two minutes and eight seconds that... It doesn't outstay its welcome. Uh, I think we can say now that at 3 minutes 40 now, with nearly another minute to go, that this song is already outstaying its welcome. Like, this, you know, people would never go to Sea Moon as an example of, you know, 
extravagant Paul, show-offy Paul, uh, big bombastic Paul, self-indulgent Paul, um, and talk about Sea Moon. Maybe people have, I don't know, but it is an example of that. This song is far too long. There's nothing we haven't heard before. The song hasn't progressed anywhere. We haven't had any more enlightening moments. Like, Paul could have wrapped this up a good minute ago, and I think the song would be better f- for it. Oh, gosh. I really have been harsh to see Moon today, folks, haven't I? Uh, let's uh, try and turn down the negativity with our next single now. And <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to be very successful because... This is a song that I've always found to be um, pretty notorious indeed, and therefore it has itself become quite notorious on this show as well. And it can only be My Love. And it's a single that came out on the 23rd of March 1973, and the sleeve artwork used in the singles box set is used for the uh, from the Israeli release. Uh, shout out to my boy at Vinyl Benji for the uh, Israeli cover art there. But yeah, oh here we go, folks. What more negatively can I say about this song? I've, I've really come for it in the past. I've tried to lessen my tone and enjoy it more for what it is of late. Um, but it still doesn't do it for me in the way other ballads do. Still, I'd be lying if I said it, it never did anything for me. You know, I've certainly sang along to it and definitely vibed with it, uh, especially live versions as well. And when I was first exploring Red Rose Speedway, I obviously saw it as the obvious hit of that album. Of course, it was the single. But even though it didn't have the greatest heights with me at the start, um, what impact it did have has still lessened over time especially as as I've progressed further through Paul's career and so you know this this, this is just a genuine forgotten moment for me I don't think about this song I'd never recommend this one to anyone I I don't agree that it's one of the great McCartney singles I think it's terribly bland for what it is like the repetition is almost parodic Uh, it's, it's not that inventive there's so much more interesting stuff on Red Rose Speedway. Let let you, you know, you know, and then all the deleted stuff as well. And like, this is just such middle of the road McCartney. This is him playing it safe. This song is a reflection of everything that was wrong with Wings in this period. You know, this is McCartney panicking and wanting a surefire guaranteed hit. And so, of course, he comes out with My Love. And well done, Paul. You did it. You got that number one. You got that validation. You got that hit. But at what cost? At the cost, uh, again, of Wings' rock and roll image? It's, it's, It's such a shame. That solo is so overrated as well. Come on, can we stop talking about it? God, even more heresy on this episode today, folks. I really should just attach one big apology in the uh, in the notes for this one. <laughs> but yeah, that 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 solo is definitely the uh, the baseline of silly love songs of this song. You know, that point that's brought up far too often in place of you know perhaps new trivia about the song. God, this song just doesn't end, does it? Ah, I'm really sorry, folks. I do want to love this song more. 
you know, it's so important in the Wings canon. It, 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 it was that little lifeline that allowed them to kind of hang on before working on the Band on the Run stuff. Uh, it was it was the gem of Red Rose Speedway. Uh, and, you know, of course, I'm looking forward to listening to it on the Half Speed remaster that's coming out soon. But that's about it. There's going to be no reason for me to come back to this one until I need to again for the show. It's funny, you know, there are songs like that, folks, that outside of talking about them for the podcast, I just don't connect with at all. This is probably the prime example of that. The, the poster child, if you will. At least we can move on to something a little more interesting and, you know, something with a little more provenance, which is our next B-side, a very tidy one indeed. This is The Mess. And we start off with uh, live, live crowd audio and Paul talking to them, which is always really atmospheric and really exciting already <laughs> in stark contrast to the A-side now. Boom, there we are. Oh, yes. This is easily already one of the best examples of a B-side that is patently better than the A-side. At least in my honest opinion. And in terms of a product to buy and value for money, this is now a fantastic package. First of all, it contrasts excellently with the A-side, my love. As on the A-side, you have what is essentially the most poppy McCartney balladeer ever to, you know, remind you that, you know, Paul can still do that kind of thing. And then on the other side, you have this track that reminds you that Wings are actually a proper rock and roll band and one that fucking rocks hard live. It's them covering all of their bases and pleasing everyone, which makes sense considering how its parent album, Red Rose Speedway, was meant to be as broad appealing an album as possible. Uh, in terms of me personally, I'd say that, you know, this is like Little Woman Love for Mary Had a Little Lamb, where like this for me would justify the, the you know, the purchase of the product. Would I like to purchase My Love if, say, like the B-side was My Love Instrumental? Probably not, but, oh, you get the mess on this one. Well, then I think I'm going to go for it. Then I think I'll pick this one up because, oh my God, this is so cool. So, like, you, like, you, you just feel like you're there. It's like a, a little Wings Cavern Club-esque moment. You know, we've had nothing from Wings Over Europe that's been released, only bootlegged. And so this track is probably one of the very few ways that people will be able to experience, you know, Wings Over Europe and the, the uh, Wings 73 UK tour, you know? It was a rumour that Wings were this awesome life band. Unless you saw them, unless you were there for those early obscure tours or the massive Wings Over the World tour, it would just be something that you'd have to trust someone else to tell you. And, you know, I think a lot of people have preconceived notions about Wings that are hard to shift. And so a track like this, you know, as a B-side, is a fantastic product. You know, so many people would have picked up My Love because, you know, it's, it's, it's a McCartney love song. That was the trend at the time. And so, so many people would be exposed to this and it, and it would it would help ease that, that perception. And it's a shame they didn't use 
more of that on other B-sides around this time. It's, it's a shame there weren't more singles, to be fair. It's a shame, but, you know, it's clear that they definitely went with the more bucolic countryside tracks for the B-side of this period, as we're going to see with the next track as well. But it would have been nice if they could have explored more of the live stuff on their B-sides. It could have been a fun format. It is what it is. Like, oh my God, folks, how good is... Uh, Linda's organ playing there actually, actually she was really on, on, on point that was, that was, that was great um, McCartney's vocal in, on this one is absolutely astounding and I love the delayed effect the delayed effect we just got there that's fantastic, I love that his bass playing's on point Denny's drumming outstanding as always the harmonies on this one are, you know, peak wings harmonies as always. And we, and you know, this is one of the like few times we get to hear wings live with with uh, these two guitarists as well, and they are so harmonic together. It's a great style. The fact that this was buried on a B side, oh my god! How is this not selling you the idea to go see wings live? I mean, what? What an advertisement! Come on. And it's mixed really well, actually. It's very, very clean. A nice um, peek at things to come with Wings Over America, certainly. McCartney definitely touched that up over time. Yeah, 100% he did. Oh, and now we come to one of the big ones, folks. Yes, I said the last one was quite a big release, but... Come on, culturally, compared to a song like this, especially with our last episode, I think you can agree that this is a big one. Yeah, 007, this is Live and Let Die. It was released on the 1st of June, 1973, and the sleeve artwork in this box set is from the Swedish release. Now, I know I've probably already broken a few hearts in the past on this podcast with my correct opinion that the Guns N' Roses version of this song is the superior one and I will stubbornly die on that hill, don't get me wrong folks but I still want to point out and reassure everyone listening out there that I still love the Paul McCartney version with all my heart I mean, come on <laughs> it would be very difficult indeed to sit down and write why this is a bad song. I'm just saying I prefer the you know the Guns arrangement. Paul still wrote it, you, you know, we all know that. We can all hear right now how exciting and thrilling this song is and how it's getting you ready for the adventure ahead, how it both exemplifies Paul's style and Bond and how it's one of the great George Martin collaboration achievements as well. Like all of those things will always be true. This little part here that Linda helped write is always going to be one of those fun little shifts in a McCartney song ever. I'm not going to dispute any of the positives about this song. It's also one of those tracks that is just straight up better live than it ever is on the record. After having heard it on Wings Over America, there's other live albums right up to when I saw him in 2018, and even Glastonbury. All of those explosions that involuntarily make you say, wow, and, you know, the, the, the fire and the sound and the the just just the entire enveloping moment of it all makes it in my mind and f along with many of you out there 
it's the de facto example of live Paul McCartney. No other song screams Paul has come to town to blow our minds than this. And those iconic theatrics and pyrotechnics have afforded it what I consider to be an infinite shelf life. It literally is part of the show. You can't have a Paul McCartney live gig without Live and Let Die. You just can't. No one's going to argue that, though, are they? <laughs> um, what about uh, this compared to other Bond themes? Uh, well, actually, in stark contrast to Billie Eilish's theme, uh, No Time to Die, which I started to like once I saw it in the context of the actual film itself, I find Paul's Bond theme is better when experienced outside of the movie. Like, not only does the film use an entirely different mix, but those credits also aren't very good. You know, the, the, the opening montage, and neither is the rest of the film, actually. Anyway, enough of that mad rambling, because I am now excited to declare that we can come to uh, one of those glorious B-sides in the canon, which is I Lie around and right at the, at, the, at the start of this i just love how this song takes its time in getting to the meat and potatoes of the whole thing and this this little audio radio drama of them chilling and spending time in the countryside setting is absolutely adorable you know it feels like you're there with them and that you know a part of that relaxed carefree vibe you legitimately forget your troubles and then as the music starts to seep in especially with that little roar on the guitar there you are whisked off your feet for a wonderful adventure this is easily one of the very best mccartney slash wings b-sides out there no questions asked even listening now it only confirms that point of view and it if you don't already believe that, your mind is probably changing as we speak. You know, how could you not think of this as the perfect Wings tune? It has pretty much everything thrown in but the kitchen sink. And it actually still works. You know, it really takes advantage of the full Wings big band sound and arrangement and pulled studio wizardry. We've got that acoustic finger-picking, soaring electric guitar, resonant bouncy piano, a full brass accompaniment, a killer vocal, equally killer backing vocals, and that little radio play at the start to top it all off. You know, this is Paul, you know, doing the, you know, country dreamer, uh, heart of the country thing again, of course, but he's doing it at the complete opposite spectrum where he's not doing something very simple to reflect the, the country. This is big band, uh, mad Professor McCartney doing the countryside thing. And it's just glorious. It's a travesty that it never made it onto the original single-disc Red Rose Speedway. I've said that before. But I am somewhat sated by the fact that it did make its way to more households by being the B-side to a James Bond track. You know, lots of people would have bought this just because it was a Bond song, not even a McCartney song. So, you know, it's nice. And even if one or two people's lives were changed by being introduced to this track, then it certainly did the job. Oh, carrying on with that thought, though, it's mad that this was relegated to a B-side. And, uh, you know, it's clearly some of the best stuff from the sessions. It's another example of Paul not knowing his material, I guess. But it also makes that uh, copy of Red Rose Speedway that I have, the, uh, the double album that came out as part of the um, archive collection, uh, all the more precious to me. I'd, 
probably like this more than Live and Let Die. I think that's fair to say as well. This is another B-side that I certainly listen to a lot more than the A-side. You're never at risk of being overexposed uh, to Isla Ram, though. It's never a song that's going to be overplayed unless by your own hand. <laughs> this song is a lot longer than I remember as well. This is five minutes and three seconds. Oh, my gosh. Of course, I've mentioned this in the past, but to me, that doesn't sound like Paul at all. Instinctively, that doesn't sound like Paul to me. This has always sounded like a Denny Lane vocal to me. And, you know, I've, you know, I, I even had this thought in recent months. There are many, many times when Denny and Paul's voices sound very similar on certain recordings, especially if they're doing studio wizardry things and Paul's messing around with them. But this has never sounded anything like Paul at all. And unless it's Paul doing a Denny impression, then I don't know what it could be. Come on, folks. All of you out there must hear what I'm hearing. I mean, you know, during during the harmonies, of course, it sounds like both of them. And, you, you, you know, you can definitely hear Paul there. But during that solo vocal, it just straight up sounds like Denny. And it's never been confirmed that way in any of the literature. It's always confused me. And then we come back into the little radio play again. You leave as you came in. It's a lovely little bit of symmetry. Very peaceful, very relaxing. I mean, thematically, it would probably work better on wildlife. But hey, I'll take what I can get. Whew. Pressing ever onwards now, and very clearly, as you can tell, this is Helen Wheels, not Helen's Wheels, and this was released on the 26th of October 1973, and the sleeve artwork from the box set is based on the Spanish release. Now, something I've, I've always loved about this song is that right after we get that big guitar riff at the start, the song actually goes a little quiet and relaxed and it actually has a little funky groove taking its time before we get to that level again you know this vibe is just so chillaxed and you know he, he really builds up to it here and you know, you know he, he just thrilled so well Paul can get you excited so well and for a driving song that is so appropriate you know right away now we feel like we're on an adventure with Paul and the gang and who isn't excited by that but yeah here we are. This is one of the best oh-so-slightly-obscure wing songs there is, and it's actually a song that I'm actively trying to limit how much I listen to because I don't want it to be overplayed. You know, oh, it's just so fun and upbeat, though, that it's, 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 it's quite hard to resist if it comes up on shuffle. The first thing that I want to point out about this song is that it's clear right from the get-go that the loss of the two band members was not this big setback for the band. I think that this, this, this was Paul trying to show the world that nothing had changed, and if anything, the sound had been simplified and honed in and was going to be more fun and dynamic than ever. It's a very interesting promise, because obviously, you know, this was released ahead of Band on the Run, and, you know, it is letting the world know that, hey things are a little bit different now and things are going to be a little more exciting in the future what a great teaser 
and it does feel like a breath of fresh air in terms of the discography, especially you know, moving forward with people who might be a little doubtful of Paul's band's product so far. This is easily one of the very best non-album singles. I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, I, I know for you Americans out there, this is a non-album single, but for me, this is a non-album single. I haven't been able to talk about this song much before. You know, we've done a Listen With Sam band on the run. I didn't get to, to uh, speak about it then. And um, it's actually placed between No Words and Picasso's Last Words, the two words tracks. And I know this is purely down to the fact that I'd listened to the English version first for so many years and I'm, I was never going to be able to hear it any other way. But, oh my God, it sounds horrible on the album. It totally ruins the flow. Uh, I prefer it as a non-album single. I, I entirely do. Um, you know, there is no way you can have any addition to Band on the Run without spoiling it. You just can't. Of course, as the song starts closing out with this wonderful wonderful instrumental here I, I cannot not mention the fact that my own mother is called Helen uh, she, she loves this song too but what's even crazier is that not only is her namesake here but my own because this song gave birth to the, the lyric Sailor Sam from Birmingham a moniker that I've never chosen to officially adopt but yeah that is where it came from uh, as embarrassing slash cool as that is. And moving on, we come to the second B-side in a row that is one of the greatest things from the Red Row Speedway sessions. This is Country Dreamer. And it's literally one of my favourite McCartney songs ever. I don't, I don't really talk about that a lot, but it's always made compilations of mine. It's always been in like my personal, say, top 25 for me, it's just, oh, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> like, you know, you've, you, you've just heard me extol the virtues of I Lie Around, and so you're not going to be surprised that I also, you know, worship at this song's altar. They're both sister tracks. They are both the embodiment of this pastoral tranquility and uh, carefree summer days off uh, joy that I know McCartney does so well and that I enjoy... Uh, you know, shamelessly. These are simple, wholesome, emotive tracks, and it really is fitting that they're both B-sides in the same year, actually. Um, and, you know, since it's the B-side to Helen Wheels as well, it's the ultimate handing over of the torch from one album to the next, you know, one phase of Wings to the next. That's quite interesting. But yeah, folks, this is just my kind of wing shtick. <laughs> I mean... Paul says that Ram is wing stuff, as we know, but, you know, Paul was doing this since, like, you know, the, the Ram era. He was doing it around this period a lot. He, you know, and then he would move on to country later on, full-on country. But this is just a McCartney mode that I've been powerless to resist whenever I've, 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 I've ever heard it. You know, it's such a wonderful um, embodiment of that early wings charm and simplicity and those connection you know, and that connection to you know early solo McCartney you know it's just the best transitionary song there is and you know I have to admit I have to be honest here folks I do have a, a personal bias uh, since losing my dad 
I suddenly found myself, uh, you know, experiencing a lot more emotion during this song, a neural pathway had been made and now I do think about him whenever I hear this one I don't know what it is like lyrically it's got nothing to do with dads or anything and if anything it's got like a romantic love kind of interest uh, uh, feel to the song but just the idea of maybe I wanted to do something with someone you know something as very innocent as a grand day out maybe just does something to me whereby I get quite emotional you know the whole thing is tinged in nostalgia and looking back and Maybe the, the nostalgia for my own father is getting muddled up in that, but regardless, this is a very emotional song for me, and it's never going to leave that, that, that coveted top 25. It just isn't. Right, folks, this is the home stretch now because we're going to be coming on to the band on the run material. Uh, yes, this is a song that I've probably been a bit harsh to over the years, folks. You know what that that means I mean you're listening to the song but just off that review alone you know that I'm going to be talking about Jet this was released on the 28th of January 1974 in the US and on the 15th of February 1974 here in the UK a big hit and the sleeve artwork is from the German pressing so yeah I've been known to quote a friend of mine who called this subpar pub rock. His name was <coughs> Tom Quay. And I do think that that is a little harsh. I mean, I kind of thought it was harsh back in the day. I've never truly committed to it. I kind of say it in uh, passe, in jest. Um, and, you know, even as I'm listening to this song now, uh, I, I can't lie and say I don't enjoy it. Is it my favourite track on Band on the Run? Nowhere near. But that doesn't mean it isn't still obviously a classic McCartney song. You know, it's up there uh, with Live and Let Die in that it is definitely done better live. You know, we all love Shouting Jet along with Paul. You know, we know why this song is as big as it is. Uh, it's also one of those songs that I feel kind of crushed the threshold into the public zeitgeist more so than many other of those solo wings uh, and her wings tunes so you have to respect it for that as well um but yeah it's definitely not one that i listen to outside of listening to band on the run fortunately i listen to band on the run in full quite a lot so i do listen to jet a lot but yeah i've never made much of a connection with it outside of, you know, enjoying a, a heavy McCartney thirding fuzzy bass line. Um, you know, recently I've actually been sporadically experimenting on the bass. My good friend Ryan gave me a bass guitar. And my God, is this track the easiest introductory Paul McCartney bass line ever? Like, there are always those critical songs at any level of your proficiency um, with an instrument where being able to nail them kind of makes you go, oh, okay, maybe I can do this, and you feel good, and it, it means you want to continue learning. And Jet is one of the best examples of that. Because Paul does something incredibly simple with this, with this song. He's not going for something showy, he's going for effect, and he needs a driving, constant sound to, 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 to move the song forward and give it that momentum. And that's what we get here. And, you know, rather than something that I can't play, it's something incredibly simple. You're just meant to jump up and down to it, and that's what you get. 
And so, you know, I've probably ended up playing Jet uh, and listening to it in terms of a reference to what I'm playing more so than I ever have just wanted to listen to the song, which is quite interesting. Like, maybe I should like this song a little more in terms of you know, the bass and all that, but <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, still, you know, listening to it now, I am having fun. I'm still enjoying that big bombacity and the grandeur that is amplified uh, on any live performance. You know, it really isn't captured here, but it does hint to it. Um, you know, this is definitely a song that warrants some big old speakers, not these tinny little earphones that I'm listening on for this podcast recording. Uh, another one where, as it's winding down, I just feel douchey for how harsh I'm being, but I've got to be honest, folks. I know, I know, I'm sorry. Then we're going to turn the disc over and come to Let Me Roll It. Oh yes, we are here. Another song that has been oft-discussed in the group. It's a steadfast example of the McCartney live show for like the last 30 years. And has only just recently been kind of semi-retired. Which is no mean feat, considering how immovable and set in stone large chunks of that set list is. It's kind of recently been phased out by... Letting Go, which is the kind of sequel song to this track, which kind of, you know, kind of makes sense. But the point is, is that I'm not too upset by that because it has had enough time in the limelight. And you know what? In in stark contrast to Live and Let Die and Jet, I would argue uh, that this is one of those few McCartney rockers that sounds better on the record. And that's why I'm not upset that it's been retired. For me, the most powerful and effective part of the song is those silences. You, you know, Paul is so effective in just just, just, just creating this, this, this really black, empty moment that really hooks you in and it's really dramatic. And then when you hear it live and everyone's screaming, it doesn't hit quite the same. Still... Like Day Tripper, it, it was a fun showcase for Paul to be on, on lead guitar also. And it's dutifully served its lengthy tenure. So, you know, I hope it enjoys its retirement for what it's worth. Uh, I mean, personally, why I would be drawn to this song it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a rocker. It's the fact that it is supposedly one of the great one of the greatest Beatles slash solo Beatles stoner tunes. As in, you know, let me roll you a joint. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said I have never uh, taken Paul's advice literally when listening to this song and done just that. <laughs> yeah, you know, we all know it's, it's a weed tune. But I never actually would have picked up on that had it not been suggested to me already. Like, I was perfectly fine in my kind of ignorant innocence in just assuming that, you know, this song was quite literal. Uh, you know, his you know his, his heart is like a wheel. Let him roll it. Uh, but, you know, it's, you know, like one of those optical illusions once you've been told it, you, you know, uh, you can't see it any other way. And you know, now I'm, I'm hyper aware of it 
But it wasn't that apparent to me upon first listen. It really wasn't. It's such a stoner riff, though, as well. You know, it's such a basement rock song in a good way, in a good way. The other big draw for this song, for other people, I guess, would be the fact that it is supposedly about John as well. I mean, it's probably been more or less confirmed. Uh, This is one of the last great attempts by Paul to communicate with John through song. And, you know, the offering of the joint to John is like a peace offering, a peace pipe. And this is also something I never would have interpreted had others not uh, done the thinking for me. You know, if I remember correctly, there were no, like, John-based songs on Red Rose Speedway. And so I guess I am a little suspicious that people were kind of getting desperate for a song about John at this point and would take what they could get. But again, it does kind of make sense. But, you know, you know, as we know, their relationship was pretty much on the mend around this point anyway. So maybe this was just a nice little cap on that, you know, to cement the newfound friendship or at least ceasefire, as it uh, as it were. This song is also another great example of Linda's keyboard playing being very simple but effective. You know, she's not being asked to do anything great here, but she's just just doing those those constant droning atmospheric notes and it's perfect for what the song needs, you know. Again, Paul is so aware of what he can and cannot get out of people and so writes for them so perfectly. Right, and here we are with our second to last single for this first episode, and it is Band on the Run, the title track from the 1973 album, though this didn't come out until the 8th of April 1974. And in terms of the artwork used for the singles box set, we have some more German sleeve artwork. Ah, Band on the Run. It feels like coming home. But, but, you know, coming home to one of those awkward Christmases where you just kind of want to get out there. (laughs) You know, this is the most overplayed McCartney song. It is annoying that it's arguably the most well-known McCartney song. And, yes, it's in his set lists live far too often. But, despite all of that, it is still family. You know, despite all of that, it is still Band on the Run. And... You and I both have no choice but to respect it. Like, I'm never going to sit here and even call it mediocre, because that would just be stupid, wouldn't it? But I can't lie, I really don't listen to it all that much nowadays. Like, I am trying to actively not to listen to it so that I can have a fresh listen to it once again. It's like taking a tolerance break from music instead of drugs, you know what I mean? Alright, and here we go now. This is the best part of the song. I think we all agree there. I don't think anyone thinks the first or third part of the song is the best. God, Paul is just demonstrating yet again that he's the master of the songwriting craft. He's stitching all these disparate elements together and making this cohesive unit that still works and making it look effortless and masterful. And then we come to the, um, if we ever get out of here line here, And I've got to say, it's simply nice and refreshing to have a piece of McCartney lyrics trivia based on a quote from George Harrison for once. (laughs) 
you know, we've got we've got him talking to John on the album. We've got him quoting Ringo here. The only thing missing is like a Ringo malapropism. You know, we'd have the full set there. Maybe Ringo said "Band on the Run." <laughs> it sounds like something he'd say. And now we are on to the second part. Sorry, the third part of this song now. And yet, Paul knows what he's doing now. This is true showmanship. He's given us, you know, some tender little opener. He's given us an exciting hook in the middle to get us in. And now we're here for an almost Hey Jude length sing-along. You know, this is a crowd pleaser. This is for a stadium. It's a proper sing-along. And it's very hard to even not sing along now, folks. (laughs) With that second segment, though, I know I always moan about it not being long enough and this part being too long. But, you know, he does do it on purpose. It's not an accident. It is for dramatic effect. And just just because I want to have my cake and eat it doesn't mean Paul has to capitulate at all. I may have mentioned this before, I probably have, but this song is always somewhat special to me because it's the first song that I ever played the whole way through with my assortment of friends in a jam. Like, now that might not sound that important or that significant, but like to anyone who's learning an instrument and you learn all the chords to a song for the first time and then you get all your mates to like, you know, learn the bass part, the drum part, do a little solo on top of that or something and, you know, they know when the changes come in. It's, it's a fun feeling. It really is. And this song is great to jam on as, as well because, you know, you can all just sing along at the end. There's loads of different parts for each instrument. It does keep changing. I don't think we, 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 we played this whole lengthy outro here, but yeah, that was definitely a formative moment in my career of playing live music very poorly. Now, this is the single version, right? Um, this is 5 minutes 13. Let's see if that's any different to the album. Uh, Band on the Run Standard Edition. 5 minutes 13, so was there no edit for this? I would have thought there would have been. 5 minutes 13. 13 is quite long. Never will be. Yeah, okay, okay, there was a radio edit of about 3 minutes 50, but that wasn't the single. Okay, that was just a radio edit. That makes sense. That makes sense. Man, if we could get some radio edits in a big singles box set as well, I think that'd be pretty fun as well. Or even just, you know, to release that on streaming would be pretty nice, you know, to have all the radio edits as well. That'd, That'd get a few clicks, I imagine. And here we are, the song's finally coming to a close now. It wasn't that bad, folks, I know. I was probably over-egging it a little bit. And with that, we now come to the second-to-last B-side. And what a B-side this is, folks. To the point whereby this is yet another example on this episode of the B-side being far superior to the A-side, and yet... Band on the Run is easily the more iconic tune, but I am willing to bet that there are more McCartney fans who rate this tune higher up in their lists than Band on the Run. Uh, Come on. This is one of the all-time great McCartney songs, let alone album closers, let alone B-sides. It's just one of his greatest. Like, this could have been the single. It really could have. It's a shame it wasn't. 
One of the things I love most about this song is how the feel and the emotion and the intent are a little different from the average McCartney love song. Like, occasionally he does stray from the beaten path and it's always oh so effective because, you know, he doesn't do it very often. And what, I, what, what I'm so drawn to here is how, you know, the lyrics here are a little snide and a little braggadocious in how McCartney seems to revel in how some other girl can't have him because he already has someone else. You know, he this other girl wants him. She may be fine. She won't get love, but she won't get mine. You know, all of that. It's like an inverted version of the girl is mine. <laughs> it's interesting, though, because whilst Paul is trying to say to his other girl that, you know, he has her and she's all he needs and therefore this other suitor, this love triangle potential partner means nothing to him. He does all of that and, you know, intending to sound like he's devoted to her, but he still goes ahead and calls the other girl right and fine. You know, still complimenting her massively. So maybe, maybe there's a little duality there. I don't know. It's a bit like where in Jolene, Dolly Parton keeps singing about how amazing and beautiful her love rival is. So, you know, there's always a possible uh, interpretation there, perhaps. I don't know. But yeah, it's still funny how Paul is essentially falling into the standard relationship 101 type of argument here. <laughs> you know, you never say the sex with your mistress was good. You know, you always say it was bad, Paul. Come on. Not that Paul's ever had one. I actually don't believe that. As this show has gone on, I've come to realise that, you know, all the supposed propaganda and dogma about Paul never straying from Linda and them never having a, a night apart is probably true, actually. I, I used to be quite doubtful of it at the start. I thought Paul would be a bit more of a hound dog, but, you know, apparently not. Anyway, back to the song. One cannot talk about 1985 without mentioning the iconic one-hand clapping version of the song. And right away, unequivocally, unquestionably, it is the superior mix. It just is. And I will always choose to listen to it while streaming rather than this version. So, you know, hearing this album version is actually, the you know, a rarer treat for me. I normally only hear this when I'm listening to it on vinyl. And it feels slightly odd to my ear. It does feel directly inferior and not as dramatic and cinematic. Like, not only is the one hand clapping vocal from Paul a better performance... But the mix just works at building the tension, you know, a little more effectively. You know, you just have Paul on the piano for, you know, the first couple of verses. And it's not right up until the end when the drums and the guitar really kick in and the bass. And, you know, that's when you, know, you start getting this stuff. But, like, it's such, you know, this was kind of bolted from the from, from the barn door right from the go. You know, it was a very quick, immediate song. Whereas the one-hand clapping version is a little slower, a little tenser, and then it builds up and suddenly shifts to this kind of stuff. And I, I find that so exciting and engaging. Whereas this one is kind of like coasting along a mediocre throughout the entirety of it. I also feel like the one-hand clapping version is the definitive version because uh, going back to my dad's iPod that I first listened to the Beatles and McCartney on, uh, that, that's the version that he had illegally downloaded on LimeWire back in the day, and he never bothered to check things or label them correctly. So that was 1985 for me for, for, for so long.
what? Just as we close out this song, this is another track from this album that has never sounded better live than on the record. Even this version or the one-handed clapping mix. The power of this song and its epic scale, the, you know, the grandeur, the, the bombacity has never been truly captured. Like, it's just like about the limitations of live music. You know, the piano's never able to pound out the notes with the same primal force. The guitar has never sounded as arch or had the right tone. The bass never hits you the right way. And Paul has also never done this this little band on the run stinger at the end. It'd be so cool if he actually did, though it's doubtful he ever will, especially if he never did it for uh, Wings Over the World. But yeah, this is another one that's never quite done it for me live. Oh, and here we are, folks. On to the final stretch now, our final single for this inaugural episode, which, as you can hear, is Mrs. Vanderbilt, which, according to Wikipedia, was released in the vague-ass period of just January 1974. No dates, no specific day, just January 1974. UK, US, France, Japan, Canada... I don't know, just January 1974. <laughs> uh, and fittingly, the uh, single-sleeve artwork is from the Netherlands. So yeah, this is a song that proves this set actually isn't just a UK-US-centric hit, as apparently it was only released in continental Europe. But then, if this was included as a continental Europe single, why wasn't Eat at Home, Smile Away included? Like... That's just not fair at all, is it? Who knows? But hey, this inclusion here is more than welcome. Um, maybe, ah, oh, were they more prioritised on getting all the Band on the Run songs in this collection rather than Ram songs? You know, I feel like maybe fans would have preferred maybe less Liverpool Oratorio stuff and maybe an extra Ram single. But hey, that's just my guess. On to the song itself now. I think... I'm always going to love this song. Uh, you know, it's one of the best McCartney throwaways there is. And I mean that in the best possible way. It doesn't It's not meant to be patronising or anything like that. But it is throwaway. It is light. It's just fun and poppy and peppy. That, 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 that iconically bouncy driving bass line has always hooked me. These backing vocals here. Hey-ho! Like, how, how can you not get caught up in, in any of this? It's so fun and jammy. It's almost like you're in a garage band or like a campfire, as I've always said. This little part here I've never been the biggest fan of. Like, I'd rather get back into the fun stuff now. There we go. And I love this drum roll from Paul here. It's very Ringo, actually. And it sounds a lot like the kind of drumming you get on um, Hell and Wheels as well. Like, Paul, as a, as a drummer for the Band on the Run sessions, isn't really covered as much as it probably should be. You know, he does drum the whole album, and it's some of the best drumming in Wings. <laughs> you know, again, you know, uh, back in the USSR, and Dear Prunes is some of the best drumming on the White Album. Whoopsie-doodle. <laughs> you know, come on, Paul, stop being such a multi-talented bastard. Let, let Danny Lane and Linda do some bad drumming. So who's this song about again? It's about the Vanderbilt, sort of like one of these massive American conglomerate uh, dynasties, right? Vanderbilt. Man looks up something on computer. I do apologise, folks. This does not make for good listening, I know. Thankfully, I've got Paul playing. Yeah. 
weirdly, I've just checked both the Paul McCartney Project and Wikipedia. There's no real in-depth look about why it was Mrs. Vanderbilt. Just a lot about, like, <laughs> the opening lines of the song are taken from the catchphrase of the English musical performer Charlie Chester. Chester's catchphrase was, Down in the jungle, living in a tent, better than a bungalow, no rent. The lyrics subsequently changed to what we heard today. Did this Charlie Chester get any of the song rights for this? Knowing Paul, probably not. <laughs> You know, when it comes to a song like this, folks, it's all just about feel and vibe. And no, it's not plumbing the depths of the human condition or anything, but it, it is just honest and fun. You know, Paul is able to tap into some of that kind of mindless, brainless, just pop. And this is that. There's just nothing to think about. You just go with it and you have a great time. And all this laughter at the end, very reminiscent of like Within You, Without You shows you that it wasn't meant to be taken seriously in the first place at all. And with that, folks, finally, 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 it's our last B-side of the day and the last of the band on the run material. It is, of course, Bluebird. And this is also another special song for me, personally. Um, I remember from, like, being a young kid that, like, my dad loved Band on the Run and, like, he mentioned it before... It was uh, Band of the Run was on the iPod in full, as I mentioned before, whereas the rest of his like McCartney downloads were just random and scattered. But he had Band of the Run in full because I believe he had that on cassette or eight track back in the day. And he, with my mom, when they were like late teens, early 20s, would like drive around and just listen to Band on the Run. And it's like, no wonder it's in my veins as much as it is. And uh, when I got my first record player, I remember my dad found his old copy of Band on the Run and I pretty much put it on immediately and I remember just like watching it, just watching that black disc spin for, for, for the very first time while I'm listening to, to, the, to the music and I was spellbound and it was, you know, that was probably the moment when the McCartney fascination truly set in. It was like years before the podcast ever began but that's when the real interest started. You know, I was already collecting vinyl at that, at that time but mostly like Tom Waits stuff. But it, it wasn't long before that copy of Band on the Run was officially mine. And the poster's still on my bedroom wall to this day. My parents also always just loved this song. Like, uh, if I was ever, like, like listening to this album in the lounge room, my bedroom, and this song came on, they'd always come up and, like, sing along to it and, or, like, whistle along or they'd shout up to me or come in the lounge, just pop the red in. They loved this song. It was probably a very formative song in their, in their relationship, you know, b before I was born. Take it away, Howie. Like, this solo is way more iconic and meaningful and emotive than the solo in My Love. Like, this is way better, come on. It is interesting, though, that <laughs> for Band on the Run, we get introduced to a lot of these extra characters who don't go on to become official Wings, uh, Wings members like Howie Casey, but they go on to, like, be part of the wider band. So, you know, it's not like it was just the three of them there. They did have a little bit of help. Seeing as how we're on the final song of both this album and this episode, I just want to point out how risky these singles are. Like, Band on the Run isn't the longest album or anything. And so, if you had all these singles, there would only be four songs on the American version of the album that you don't already have on single, and only three if you have the English or European version. I mean... 
I actually find it quite shocking that they didn't like write a, a, a few like throwaway B sides or or plumb the depths of the back catalogue and the Colcuts just to like keep a bit more of the album a mystery. Like they also had so many unused tracks from Red Rose Speedway as well. So like, couldn't they have like kept the rest of the album, you know, behind closed doors a little bit and you know cause you to buy it? It does seem a bit of a waste. And with Ram as well to put so many of the album tracks as B sides. And we'll probably see that in the next episode with London Town as well. But yeah, there we are, folks. That is it for now. I've sat here for far too long listening to music and talking about Paul McCartney. I definitely need to rest my throat. But that is the end of our first episode of Listen With Sam, Paul McCartney, The Seven Inch Singles. Yes, we have been taking a break from our regular Listen With Sam side series. So I'm very sorry for all of those tug of war fans who were looking forward to their episode or pipes of peace maybe i'm not quite sure but yeah solo paul era 80s listen with sam will be taking a break whilst we go through this singles box set i think i've done a pretty good stab at it so far we've gone through a total of 26 tracks so far and i'm just scrolling to the very bottom there are a total of 159 tracks though folks so there's still quite a ways to go like I say, this isn't going to be every week. I'm not going to be doing the next eight episodes as this, but these are going to be my interim episodes, my little filler episodes when I'm working on other things or editing bigger episodes. So you can look forward next week to uh, all of Wings after Band on the Run. So you'll be looking at hits like Silly Love Songs, Mull of Kintyre, Take It Away, Temporary Secretary, Pops of Peace, right the way through to the late 80s. I think we're going to try and maybe even do a little bit more next episode. The notes for that are already done as well, so there's basically another episode in the bag. I might even try and get it done a little bit early for you Patreon patrons out there. Keep you, all of your beaks wet. Anyway, enough of all that. Thank you for listening, folks. This has been another episode of Paul Lillithing. I've been your host, Sam Wiles. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna. No more autographs. Play us out, Denny. Denny.